Every year, hundreds of murders go unsolved, investigations yielding no arrest, and victims either were never found or identified. Yearning families become hopeless as years pass by, unfortunately losing a bit of hope with every second that ticks on. This is the reason why I make these videos, to give a voice to those who are unheard, to say their name once more, and maybe you that's watching will be able to provide the information that will allow closure for the victims and their loved ones. Say their names, feel their struggles, and here are their stories. Garnet Jen. Garnet Jen, a 33-year-old Portland High School home economics teacher, was adored by both students and faculty. She was nearing the end of her master's degree, and her future appeared promising. She had everything to live for. Then, on a Tuesday, February 28, 1950, Garnet did not show up for her classes. Phone calls to her went unanswered, prompting the school superintendent to go to Garnett's house to find out what was going on. She was reportedly last seen the night before on February 27, 1950, around 10 p.m., when she dropped off a friend at 420 East High Street on the way home from a sorority party. When the superintendent of the Portland Public Schools arrived at her home to check on her around 11 a.m. on the 28th, he found her hanging in her garage from her car's passenger door with a sewing machine belt tied around her neck and the door handle. She was also crammed into a small space next to the car door. She was on her knees, wedged in a 14-inch space between the car and her door. The superintendent then proceeded to call 911. The coroner initially ruled the death a suicide and her body was sent to the funeral home. But before the funeral home did anything with the body, the coroner reportedly reached out to the funeral home and asked them to hold off. Then, on March 4th, Garnett's death certificate was released and the cause of death was recorded as strangulation. Suspicious calls started coming in to different recipients. The first was received by a reporter on April 6th warning her to, and I quote, lay off the case. Then on April 12th, Garnett's body was exhumed and taken to the Indianapolis General Hospital for a second autopsy. The Indiana State Police eventually took over the investigation, and soon after they also began receiving threatening phone calls, ordering the ISP to stop all investigations into the case. These phone calls continued all the way through the early 2000s. The caller's voice sounded like a familiar male's voice, and upon investigations, various reports also stated that they received similar calls from that familiar voice as well. 
The second autopsy revealed that Garnett was indeed murdered. Unfortunately, the police were unable to identify a suspect, leaving the case left unsolved. However, thanks to the renewed interest in the case in 2019, the Portland police were able to identify Garnett's likely attacker. The police, including other people who were familiar with Garnett, believed that she was having an affair with a married optometrist in town. A witness came forward and said that Garnett had apparently filed a report with the police shortly before her passing and that the optometrist had been stalking her. Another witness also stated that the optometrist quickly moved away shortly after Garnett's murder. With this information, the police believe that the optometrist is the primary suspect and likely Garnett's murderer. However, all the evidence collected from the scene, such as the sewing belt, Garnett's clothes, and the DNA from the muddy handprint and blood splatters went missing or had been thrown away due to the incident being 72 years ago. A community meeting was held in 2019 at the Historical Society to discuss the findings in this case and to present the new witness statements. They concluded the meeting naming their number one suspect. Because there are no existing evidence to back up their suspicions or test using DNA, the case remains open to this very day. If you know any information about this cold case, the contact information is in the description below. Bob Hamburg. On August 6, 1971, it was well after midnight, 1.45 a.m., when the recent Creighton High School graduate and student at the University of Minnesota, Bob Hamburg, told his roommate that he was going for a little walk. It was not unusual for Bob to walk around the block on Laurel and Western Avenues in the Cathedral Hill neighborhood. Bob's brother, Jim Hamburg, stated, it was nothing unusual for Bob to walk around the block and have a smoke. According to a newspaper article from the time, at 6.30 a.m. the following morning, two teenagers were bicycling to work, the Camo Zoo, when they discovered Hamburg's body at St. Albans Street and Pleasant Avenue. He left his wallet at his apartment, leading his family to believe that he didn't intend to be gone for too long. Bob has previously experienced severe, serious head injuries as well as other wounds. On his finger was a 1970 Creighton High School class ring with his initials RJH, which police used to identify him. And his father was tasked with going to the morgue to confirm that it was indeed Bob's body. Mark Hamburg, Bob's brother, stated, and I quote, That's a heavy burden to bear. It's just a horrific, violent, and deadly act. We almost have no information, and no one has been held accountable. For 50 years, Bob's family continued to search for answers. Bob's friends from his high school graduating class of 1970, David Eggenberger, Michael Donnelly, Dave Ayers, Ed Cleary, and others rallied during their reunion, offering a reward for information. So many decades have gone by, and though the perpetrator may have already passed away, Bob's friends believe that his family still deserves to know the truth. Though the reward is only $10,000, Bob's family and friends are praying that someone will come forward because of it. Bob's brother Mark stated, We are hoping somebody has a conscience that maybe was afraid to talk 50 years ago or 30 years ago. I believe that somebody knows something. Luckily, the police are not giving up. Sergeant Nicole Sipes, a St. Paul police homicide investigator, was recently assigned the case 
to take a renewed and fresh look into all the evidence and information, in conjunction with the reward that is being offered. Sibes stated, Behind every cold case, there is a family that is looking for some justice and closure. We always want to take a look at these cases and see if we can find some conclusion for them. If you have any information regarding the death of Bob Hamburg, please call 800-222-8477 or the St. Paul Police Department at 651-266-5650. The information is also in the description below. You are also able to submit tips anonymously while still being eligible to receive the reward. Mary Ann Holmes 1995, Thatcher, Arizona was a small town where families felt safe and everyone knew each other by name. Then, when Marianne Holmes, a 29-year-old local single mother, was brutally raped and murdered in her own home in front of her two daughters, aged four and 18 months old, the entire community of Thatcher was shook to the core. July 9th, 1995, the perpetrator snuck into the unlocked back door of Marianne's home and assaulted her, leaving her left for dead. Marianne's clothes were forcefully cut off of her body and she was bound with handcuffs and a rope while being gagged. She was also sexually mutilated and was raped both vaginally and anally by the perpetrator and a foreign object that was never found. Mary was then struck in the head time after time by a sharp object during and after the rape, possibly being the same object that she was raped with. She also appeared to have been strangled from behind. She was then found in her bathroom, with her hands bound and head battered inwards. The cause of death was later recorded as blunt force trauma to the head. Unfortunately, all of this occurred as her two daughters watched from a bed nearby, just a couple of feet away from where the torture was done. Mary Ann's four-year-old daughter was also stripped of all of her clothes and was bound, but luckily she was spared any sexual attacks. The young girl sat with her mother's body for some time after the murder, trying to wake her up, before eventually escaping next door to the neighbors while still naked and bound. The police arrived to the scene where they found an 18-month-old girl next to her mother. Both of Marianne's daughters were left physically unharmed, but the mental anguish continued and followed the young girls to their adulthood. Upon investigations, the investigators found that the two daughters were restrained and forced to watch every second of the torture done to their mother. The four-year-old also drew a gruesome picture of what had occurred, which when compared to the photos of the crime scene, her drawing was almost identical to the images. In the four-year-old's drawing, she drew her mother laying on the ground with what looked like a knife or hatchet stuck to her head. She also drew blood pooling around her body. The four-year-old was interviewed, but not a lot of information was gathered from it. The child was obviously traumatized and too young to give a proper detailed account of what had occurred. However, one statement that stuck with the police that the young girl had said was that the intruder was huge and that he was, and I quote, a lion man. During the investigation, the police discovered a bloody shoe print, roughly a size 11 or 12 men's shoe. A fingerprint was also found on the handcuffs that was used on Marianne. A small trace of DNA was found, but not enough to produce solid leads, and when ran through the databases, there were no matches found. Interesting enough, and a possible lead, Marianne actually held a yard sale the day prior to the attack. She made a small amount of cash at her yard sale but investigators found that the money that she made during the sale was also stolen during the assault. 
Marianne's neighbor, Kay Turner, believes that there is a connection between the yard sale and the attack, but there are no evidence pointing to this. Many questions were asked by the community. Did the killer go to her yard sale? Did he buy something? Did he use it as an excuse to scope out her residence? Or perhaps he realized Marianne was a single mother living with her children and saw her as vulnerable, but there were no evidence that connected the yard sale to the attack. During the investigation, the back door of Marianne's home was also broken, and Mary had recently been asking her landlord to fix the door for a while now, but he never followed through. It was found that ultimately this back door was how the killer gained entry. There were three main suspects, David Black, John Bursey, and Philip Turley. Let's start with David Black. David's father owned the home that Marianne was renting. Marianne apparently had given David money to fix the back door, but David never followed through. And it just happened to be the main point of entry of the perpetrator. David also matched the description that Marianne's young daughter described. He had blonde hair and a beard, which can be compared to the lion man description of the killer. David also moved to the home years later. He was also described to be obsessed with the case. He claimed that living in the home made him feel closer to Marianne. People who knew David also described him to be very out there and not very mentally stable. The next suspect is John Bursey. John was Marianne's ex who lived in Florida, and it was reported that Marianne was very afraid of him. There were records of police reports that Mary filed after he threatened to go back to Thatcher for her. Soon after her death, the police interviewed him, but his alibi checked out and was immediately cleared. The final suspect was Philip Turley. Philip was also the primary suspect because he had an obsession with Marianne to a point where he was lying about their relationship. There were sources who said that they may have dated at one point, but other people who knew both of them mentioned that they were just acquaintances and nothing else. Philip lied to a family member stating that he was engaged with Marianne, but that was also not true. Philip also mentioned to people that he had bought land in the town of Pima with the hopes of building their dream house. It was later revealed that he kept a detailed diary about his obsession with Mary. With all of this information, Philip immediately became the number one suspect of Marianne's murder. This was further solidified when Philip's ex-girlfriends were interviewed and they stated that Philip was violent and was obsessed with rough sexual activities, which included bondage with rope and handcuffs. Though Philip was the number one suspect, he was not charged due to the lack of evidence that would be applicable for a formal arrest. The case remains cold, and Marianne's daughters are now adults who are still haunted by the memories from that horrific night. In 2016, Philip Turley, now a 53-year-old man in California, was arrested along with Alicia Nadine for the stabbing of two people. And just last year in 2021, he pled guilty to premeditated attempted murder. Even though this case remains cold, I have hope that maybe he will finally talk now that he is currently incarcerated. These cold cases have continued to haunt friends, family, and colleagues. Their prayers for closure continue. And though hope for catching the suspect is slowly diminishing as years pass, the hope for getting answers will remain. If you have any information regarding these cases, 
in the description box below you will find the appropriate parties to contact. I am offering an award of $5,000 to anyone that can provide information that leads to the closure of these cold cases.